Hebrews chapter 7 today. For a while, the uh, paintings of Thomas Kincaid were everywhere, and uh, it was all the rage. And everybody was, everybody was buying them and so forth. A lot of galleries were out there, and they're still popular. Uh, the paintings are these idyllic settings of uh, houses and settings and rural stuff that just look so beautiful and peaceful, and we loved it. And uh, later on, he did an interview. He said, I'm painting as if the fall never happened, as if sin never came into the world. I, I'm painting pictures that what it would be like had sin never come into this uh, world and into the lives of people. If you look at the paintings, of course, that's what it's like. There, there's no mosquitoes in his painting. There's no, no crabgrass, no dry rot, uh, no mean-spirited people. It's, um, it's all idyllic. It's, it's like it, we would like it to be, right? And so, it, but the problem is, the reality is, that's not the case, is it? We live in a world that is corrupted by sin, and uh, it, everything in, in our creation, including humanity, has been corrupted by sin, and human beings are in defiance of Almighty God as a result of that. And therefore, something needs to be done about that situation unless we just continue on as we are. And so the story of, of the whole storyline of, of the scriptures, starting in chapter 3 going forward, is what Jesus Christ is going to do for us to remedy this awful situation of, of, of sin and corruption that we face. It, it's a storyline of telling us how, what God has done to remedy that. And we talk about, we call that the gospel most of the time. The gospel is what Jesus Christ has done uh, to fix, to solve the problem. He has come uh, at the incarnation and lived throughout his life perfectly, defying all sin, never tempt, giving in to any temptation. He goes to the cross and he takes all of our sin upon, upon himself. Then he resurrects from the dead, proving that he is Almighty God and that he has authority even over death. Then he ascends to heaven and sits down at the right hand of the Father. And Scripture tells us one day he comes again. He will set up a kingdom. And it's going to even be better than a Thomas Kincaid painting. It's going to be absolutely perfect. There's the gospel. And we rehearse that a lot. We talk about that a lot. But you know, there's something that's often missed concerning the gospel that is found in the book of Hebrews. And I've, I'm reading right now a very good book on the sufficiency and the greatness of Christ and of uh, his word and of the gospel. And this, this book also leaves out a piece, I believe, that is so important for our salvation and for our, our life and eternity. A piece is missing. It's missed in almost every gospel presentation I've ever seen. Uh, it's hardly ever mentioned, and that is where we're at today. And that is Jesus Christ is our high priest. Who talks about that? All the other things I just mentioned. All these other ministries are already done. They're in the books. Except for the return of Christ, which we await for. But the high priest ministry of Jesus Christ is an ongoing ministry right now. And without it, we could not be saved. And without it, we could have no life whatsoever in Christ. And without it, we're eternally lost. And yet it's usually missed. And the book of Hebrews is going to remedy that. It's going to tell us about the high priestly ministry of Christ and why it is so important. And so as we move into chapter 7 of Hebrews, this is, I will admit to you, this is a, it's almost a throwaway chapter. I would say the average person that reads Hebrews chapter 7 gets through it as quickly as they can, kind of like reading Leviticus. You read chapter 7 and move right on to something better. Because it is intense, it is difficult, it doesn't fit our regular understanding of things. 
And as I've worked so hard the last few weeks trying to put these sermons together, uh, I've come to the same thing. This is hard. This is difficult stuff. Who wants to hear this stuff? And yet the Lord put it in His Word, and the more I got into it, the more I studied it, the more I looked at it, the more I realized it's at the very heart of the gospel, it's at the very heart of the Christian life. We cannot truly live the Christian life without the understanding of Hebrews chapter 7. It is the heart of the book of Hebrews. In this, in this particular chapter then, we're going to look at the priesthood of Christ. Again, even the priesthood is odd to us. We don't think much about priests uh, like the Old Testament people did. And so it's a little odd to us at first, but there's a, the priesthood of Christ is showcased here, and it's showcased through a little-known character by the name of Melchizedek. Uh, I doubt that, unless you've been going to church here for the last 50 years, I doubt that many of you have heard a sermon on Melchizedek. He just doesn't come up very often. And yet he comes up here as, a, as the most important person in the book of Hebrews outside of Jesus Christ himself. If you recall chapter 5 verse 6, the uh, author of Hebrews started out talking about Melchizedek. And he says that uh, you are a priest, speaking of Christ, quoting from Psalm 110, verse 4. You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. And so he's getting ready to go off and, and tell us all about this. But then he gets sidetracked. And he says here in, the, in verses 11 to 14, I, I really want to tell you about Melchizedek. I want to tell you why this is so important. But you're not ready for this. And he almost, basically, he's almost insulting. Verses 11 to 14, he says, it's hard to explain, he says, verse 11, since you'll become dull of hearing. And later on, he says, uh, it is, it is for, verse 14, solid food is for the mature. But you're not mature. It's pretty insulting. He said, I want to teach you something, but you don't, you're not ready for it. You're not mature enough. And in chapter 6, he says, all you want to do is fixate on the ABCs. You want to go back to the toddler department and keep repeating the same things you've heard all of your life. You don't want to move on. And so it's pretty insulting. What what if I got up here and said, look, I've got this marvelous message all all mapped out for you. It's great. But none of you are mature enough to handle it. What would you think about that? You would say, well, I think he's getting a little senile. Let's get rid of him because I'm very mature. Well, are you? I hope so. I hope a bunch of you are going to say, this is hard stuff, but I need this, and I'm going to grow in this. And if not, you need to, because you know what? Right after he gets done with chapter 5 and saying you're not mature enough, he goes into chapters, all of chapter 6, mapping out how they should get mature, and then he comes to the end of verse, uh, chapter 6, verse 20, and he says, I'm going to go back to Melchizedek anyway. I'm going to talk about Melchizedek, whether you're ready or not, And I think he's taking a page from the Savior. If you go back and read the Gospels, you'll find quite often Jesus says, teaches something hard. If you don't believe that, read John 6. He teaches something hard or he teaches a parable that almost nobody understands. And then he turns around and he says to them, he who has an ear to hear, let him hear. He places the, the responsibility for understanding and responsibility for application on the hearer. He doesn't say, I wish I could explain this better. Matter of fact, sometimes he made it hard. But he says, if you want to know, if you really want to know, here it is. I think that's why he did the parables. The parables, for those that wanted to follow Christ, 
They, they got the parables ultimately. They understood them. For those that wanted to play the game or reject him, they never got them. And that, that's, that's how Jesus taught. So the author of Hebrews is doing something very similar to that here, I think. He is saying, look, he who has an ear to hear, let him hear. If you want to grow, if you want to be mature in Christ, if you want to know the very splendors and the wonders and the treasures he has for you, listen up. Quit listening to other things. Quit looking around. Quit daydreaming. Listen up. I'm going to give you the real deal here. And I want you to hear it. And I want you to respond to it. Having, having said all those things, we're going to go back to Melchizedek. And we're going to go back to the Old Testament, to Genesis chapter 14, for just a moment. Genesis chapter 14. And we're going to look at all three verses in the Genesis that talk about Melchizedek. All three of them. Abraham is, uh, had just defeated an army of several kings who had come to, to Sodom, had defeated Sodom, and had taken Lot and his family into captivity. When Abraham found out about it, he went off with his 318 servants. He had quite an army there. And he defeated these, this, this enemy, and he brought back the spoils. A lot of it they had stolen from Sodom. And he, and he brings it back here. And this is where Melchizedek shows up. Chapter 3, verse 18 of Genesis 14. I don't know what I just said. Genesis chapter 14, verse 18. Okay, let's try it again. I don't know what I'm saying. Anyway, verse 18. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. Now he was the priest of the Most High God. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram of the Most High God, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hands. And he gave him a tenth of all. Now, I'm not going to come back here later. So make sure you read these verses and see what he's saying. Because this is the, ba- the basis of what he's saying in the whole thing. So Abraham has defeated the, 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 these four kings. Melchizedek shows up, brings him bread and wine. And then Abraham gives him a tenth of the spoil. And, he, uh, bl- and uh, Melchizedek blesses him. That's the storyline. And that's all we hear about Melchizedek for a thousand years. This is about year 2000 before Christ. Nobody hears another word about Melchizedek for a whole millennium. Then we go to, to Psalm 110. So on our way back to Hebrews, stop off at Psalms. Psalm 110. And we have one more verse in the scriptures about this Melchizedek. And, we've already, and that's the one quoted here in the book of Hebrews. And, and Psalm 110 is the most quoted psalm in the Bible. 110 verse 4. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. So a thousand years later, having never been mentioned in any of the prophets, anything by, by anybody else, the Psalms, Proverbs, anything, suddenly it shows up. You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. So there's a prophecy here of something that's going to happen later concerning Christ the Messiah. But then it's dropped. And for another thousand years, nobody mentions Melchizedek. It's not mentioned by Jesus. It's not mentioned in the Gospels. He's not mentioned in Acts or any of Paul's epistles or Peter's writings, any of them, except Hebrews. And so we go back to Hebrews chapter 7, which is one of the latter books written in the New Testament, not the last, but one of the latter ones. 
And suddenly Melchizedek becomes central feature to the whole concept of who Christ is as our high priest. Very interesting, isn't it? And so someone who's hardly ever been mentioned suddenly becomes a big deal. Now let's take a look at a couple of things that Melchizedek was. What Melchizedek is, is a type of Christ. A type in the, in the scriptures was an Old Testament person or figure or something that pointed to something in the New Testament, often Christ. It, it was a, a foreshadowing of something that would come later. And so Melchizedek becomes a foreshadowing of Christ. He's not Christ, but he's a foreshadowing of him. He points to Jesus, and that's why we're looking at him here. And we find that he has two primary roles. He's a king, and he's a priest. So first of all, verse 1, it says, that For it is Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham as he returned from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, to whom also Abraham apportioned a tenth part of all the spoils, was first of all, by translation of his name, king of righteousness, and also king of Salem, which is king of peace. We start off with the fact that he's king. Four different times, it says that Melchizedek was a king. The Old Testament, and he's also a priest. Now here's the thing. The Old Testament priest and kings were totally separate. A priest never became a king, and a king never became a priest. It would be kind of like in our country, the president is not the chief justice of the Supreme Court. That's a good thing. There's separation of powers. And so it was in the Old Testament. Priest, king, they never blended. But now we have a man, Melchizedek, who foreshadows Christ, who is both a king and a priest. And that's, that's by design. Now he is the king of righteousness here. And he's the king of peace. What he's saying is this. The road to peace is paid by righteousness. You cannot have the peace of God without the righteousness of Christ. And all the peace that we have with God, peace in our hearts, peace in anything, is based on the righteousness of Christ. In the, in the wonderful book, In the Presence of My Enemy by Gracia Burnham, the missionary who several years ago, her and her husband was kidnapped in the Philippines, spent months in uh, captivity. They were starved. They were abused. They were uh, ultimately Martin died in the process. We've had Gracia here to do a woman's things for us once before. Wonderful lady. But in that jungle, as she was in captivity, undergoing great anxiety. You can imagine, right? You're anxious over what's for lunch. She's anxious over her whole life and not knowing the future. And while she was trying to sleep sometimes, her husband took her hand and would sing gently and quietly his favorite hymn. And put yourself in her, her, her shoes, not ours. Think about the need for peace in her life and how these words would minister to her soul. The song went this way, Far away in the depths of my spirit tonight arose a melody sweeter than psalm. In celestial-like strains it unceasingly falls or my soul like an infinite calm. And then you're, you're, you know the chorus. Peace, peace, wonderful peace. Coming down from the Father above. Sweep over my spirit forever, I pray. In fathomless billows of love. And with those words, she was able to calmly go to sleep. Not because the words are so beautiful, which they are. But because the God behind that sentiment is real. And sovereign and in control. And she could rest. 
in the righteousness of Christ and have peace in him. And so in our passage of scripture, we find that he is a, first of all, Melchizedek is a king in Christ would be a king. And secondly, he's a priest. In verse 1, it mentioned that uh, a priest is one who bridges the gap between man and God. So Melchizedek not only ruled, he prayed. Melchizedek not only brought, uh, did, did things a king did in, in reigning, he brought people to God. Because our peace with God is based on the righteousness, we can now come into the very presence of Christ himself through the, through the ministry of Christ. And so this minor character in the Old Testament does what no one else has ever done. He served as both a king and a priest. And he foreshadows Christ as our king and our priest. So there's the backdrop. There's the history. If that's all it was, I just gave you a history lesson from the Bible. And that's all it is. But that's not all it is. And so he moves on to the implications and there's two basic implications here that we're going to look at in the next few minutes. First of all, Melchizedek and Christ, their ministry is unique. And secondly, Melchizedek and Christ, their ministry is superior. Verse 3 of chapter 7. Going further with Melchizedek. Without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days or end of life, but made like the Son of God... He became a priest perpetually. A lot of things are packed into to that little verse. Let's take, we're going to look at some of the differences between Melchizedek's ministry as a priest and king and that of the Old Testament and how that foreshadows Christ. But before we do, let me get out of the way a couple of things that bother people. Jack, exactly who is this Melchizedek? Some have said that he's an angel and he came down and took on the form of a man And he lived as an angel on this earth and left because we don't have any record of his life or his death. Others say, well, he's actually a pre-incarnate coming of Jesus Christ himself. That Jesus took on a human form and lived on this earth in a a pre-incarnate condition and he was Melchizedek. I reject both views. A a couple of reasons. Even though the angels took on human form on occasion, they never hung around. They never stayed in town and talked and, and led and, and ministered. They, they came for a, a reason left. Jesus also came in human form on a few occasions, our angelic form, most often the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament, but he too never hung around. He came, he did his, what he was wanting to do, and he left. Melchizedek was a real man. He really lived on earth. He was not an angel. And notice carefully it said that he was made like the Son of Man, or Son of God, not the Son of God. He's similar, but he is not the same. And so this is a truly is a man. So what is he saying in verse 3? He is saying that Melchizedek is different from all the Old Testament priests because he has no genealogy. We know nothing about his father, his mother, his background. We know nothing about his future. He, all the Old Testament priests could... Would, could trace their genealogy back to Aaron, who was a Levite from the tribe of Levi. You could not be a priest unless you could trace your genealogy back to Levi and, and, and Aaron. But we don't have that with Melchizedek. All the Old Testament priests had to do was prove their genealogy in order to be a priest. Melchizedek couldn't do that. He didn't have that record. 
And so he couldn't do that. You might recall in Ezra chapter 2 verse 62. When the people of Israel came back from exile. Some of the people said. I, I have the, I'm, I'm from the tribe of Levi. I'm from the, the, the heritage of Aaron. I can be a priest. And they said show us your papers. Show us your genealogy. They couldn't. And because they couldn't show their genealogy. They were removed from being a priest. All, all the Old Testament priests had to do. Was be from the right, right family. But Melchizedek was not from that family. He was instead from the family, a a, a family we don't know anything about. I know all the rage right now is to do a DNA test and find out your background, where you're from, what what kind of a lineage you have. And if you've been around here a while, you know that I like to tell everybody I'm a Melungeon. And unless you've been to this church, you don't know what a Melungeon is. So Melungeons are a group of people down in the Appalachian Mountains from where my family came from who uh, have some characteristics that I have uh, physically and also have surnames and, uh, like, like my family had. They live from the exact area where my family came from and nobody so far on the planet know where they came from. There is no genealogy. There's no record. Nobody knows who they are. And so I like to say I'm a Melungeon. So nobody knows who I am. Isn't that great? But I can't prove that because there's no records. Well, Melchizedek has no records. He has no genealogy. But that makes him absolutely unique. But Jesus, on the other hand, was not like that, right? We can trace Jesus' genealogy through the book of Luke and the book of Matthew. We know he goes back to, to David, but he doesn't go back through Aaron. That means he's not from the tribe of Levi, he's from the tribe of Judah, which means this. Jesus was disqualified from being a priest, according to the Old Testament system of law. And these Hebrews that he's writing to here were probably pushing back on that. How can you tell us that Jesus Christ is our high priest when he's not even qualified to be a priest? It can't be. And what the author of Hebrews is saying, oh, wait a minute. God is doing something absolutely unique. He is going around Aaron, around the law, around Moses, and he's going straight from Abraham to Jesus, and he's going to do something brand new. He's a priest, but not like the Old Testament priests were. But he wants us to know, before we leave verse 3, that, that his priesthood is perpetual, it's never ending, it is eternal. The Levi priesthood and the priest of Aaron, the high priest, um, the priesthood was limited by two things. One is by age and one is by death. Now I often hear people say, you know, there's no, there, there's no such thing as retirement in the Bible. Au contraire. It's actually in the Bible twice. Okay, so if you want to get a verse for retirement, here you go. The Levites in Numbers chapter 8 were required to begin working at age 25 and retiring at age 50. How about that? And the priest began their work at age 30 and retired at age 50. Now, what did they do after age 50? Well, I assume they bought RVs and went down to Egypt during the wintertime, you know. <laughs> And they went over to the Mediterranean Sea and collected seashells. Or this is my where golf was invented. You know? And they spent all their time playing golf or shuffleboard and now pickleball. And then go in the hospital after they play for a while. I mean, 
I don't know what they were doing there. They were doing any of those things, by the way. But it does say they became helpers. They didn't go off and do nothing. They were helpers, but they lost their positions at that point in time. I would say this. There's no such thing as retiring from the work of Christ, of serving Him until the Lord takes you home. But there is such a thing as retirement, but not to, not to collect seashells with a seashore, did I say it right? But to walk with Christ and serve Him wherever He puts us. But anyway, he says here that this, this ministry of Melchizedek and Christ is perpetual. It never ends. It is eternal. Not only is Christ unique, go to verses 4 on down, he is superior. The ministry of Melchizedek, the person of Melchizedek, was superior to anything in the Old Testament system as Christ is superior to anything in the Old Testament system. And he, they, he, the author proves that by going to the, the, the greatest of all the Old Testament characters as far as the Jews was concerned, and that is Abraham, the father of the Hebrew people. And so he goes right for the big guy. And he says this in verse 4, Now observe how great this man was, to whom Abram the patriarch gave a tenth of the choicest spoils. And those indeed of the sons of Levi who received the priest office have commanded, have commanded in the law to collect a tenth from the people, that is from their brethren, although they are descendants from Abraham. Now, let's take a look here. How do we know that Melchizedek was superior to Abraham? And by, by connotation, Jesus Christ is superior. How do we know? First of all, Abraham tithed to Melchizedek. Seven times in our passage, going down to verse 10, tithing is mentioned. And Abraham tithed. What did he tithe? At the end of the battle, he brought back all these spoils. And they piled them up in a heap. This is what people did in those days. And he tithed off of that heap. Matter of fact, it says here in uh, verse um, 4, he gave a tenth of the choicest spoils that was there. Now this particular term is pretty interesting. It means in the literal meaning of the, of the choicest spoils is the top of the heap. And that's what the pagans did. They took the top of the heap of their spoils, offered them to, the, to their gods. Now Abraham didn't do that. Uh, he, he gave it to, to Melchizedek. But that's what the word means, the top of the heap. Now let me go off on a real quick tangent. Uh, most of my life I've heard uh, people, Christian people, talk about tithing. And that Christians should be tithers. And uh, we give our tithes and our offerings. I'm going, as I've often done before, I'm going to contradict that. There is no place in all the New Testament that tells us to be tithers. There's three mentions of tithing in the Gospels in which Jesus is using it in a process of condemning the Pharisees for tithing but not living. And only other place is here which has nothing to do with New Testament tithing, per se. It's never mentioned. So, should you tithe? Well, if you are, probably a lot of you feel pretty guilty, because I just read the average Christian gives 2% to the Lord's work. Now, I think that's pitiful. And I think the statistics also say the richer you get, the less you give proportionally. And that's, that's a travesty. Because the principle, all the way through the New Testament, go back to 1 Corinthians or 2 Corinthians chapter 9 and 10, 8 and 9, 
Go back to other passages, 1 Corinthians 16. The principle throughout all the New Testament is we give as the Lord has blessed us. And we give on the basis of Christ's indescribable gift to us. That is because he's done so much for us, we can't help but want to give back to him. And the principle is here as well. Give off the top of the heap. Don't wait till everything is, is spent and you've done all the things you want to do and you've got all your plans laid out. You give off the top. The Old Testament, the first fruits were given. Read Malachi. The people that brought their lame and their blind animals to sacrifice, the Lord said, I reject them. You bring me your best. And let me encourage you as we start a new year that you take a good look at how you spend your money. We very seldom ever talk about money here, but sometimes we need to. You look at how you're living your life, look how you are using your finances, and ask yourself, are you giving off the top of the heap? Are you giving the Lord your best or just the leftovers? Uh, You will be greatly blessed to give of your best. You will be greatly discouraged if you don't because the Lord expects his people to love him so much that he comes first. Well, having said all of that, we move back now to to look at what's happening. Verse 5. And those indeed of the sons of Levi who received the priest office have commanded in the law to collect a tenth for the people. And that is from the brethren, although they are descended from Abraham. But the one whose genealogy is not traced from them collected a tenth. And then he goes on and says, And Abraham from Abram and blessed the one who had the promises. I want you to notice he's doing, and he's setting us up for later in the book. The Lord is going to say here, through, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to this author, that the Lord is now doing something totally different. He's going totally around the Old Testament law. We're no longer under the Mosaic law. We're under the new covenant of Christ. All things have changed including the priesthood. Because it was necessary to change the priesthood if you're going to change the covenant, if you're going to change the law. And in order to do that, not only do we see that, that Abraham gave, gave tithes to Melchizedek, but we see that Melchizedek was superior to Abraham and blessed him. And it says here that, the, that without dispute, the lesser is blessed by the greater. Abraham was inferior to Melchizedek. That was insulting to the Jews. Abraham was the top. He was the best. But it says here he is inferior to Melchizedek, who is a shadow, a foreshadowing of Christ himself. But we're not done. Verse 8, he says this. In this case, mortal men receive tithes, but in that case one receives them, of whom it is witness that he lives on. And so to speak, although Abraham, through Levi who received the tithes, paid tithes, for he was still in the loins of his father when Melchizedek met him. See, there's more. Look, not only did Abram give tithes to Melchizedek, but all the descendants of Abraham who are in him did so at the same time. If America went to war, if America declared war, then we all, the citizens of America, are going to war. Even if we didn't want to go to war. We are represented by our country. The whole nation of Israel. Now catch this. Is represented here. Through what's going on. Through Abraham. And Abraham is inferior to Melchizedek. And Jesus is superior as well. 
Now going down as we read these verses then, the point is the law is no longer that which we are under. Something better has come. Jesus is superior to the law. And here's, here's the issue that we're, that we're struggling with here is these people in the Hebrews who have been written to here seem to be thinking that they were losing something by, by living for Christ. They wanted to go back to an old system, the Old Testament system that they were used to. Their traditions were there. Their, their, their background was there. Their priesthood was there. The law was there. They loved it. And the writer of Hebrews is saying, wait a minute, that's been replaced by something far better, far superior in Christ. And if you go back to the shadows, you'll never get to the substance. Now, not many of you are tempted to go back into the same system that the that Hebrews did, but, and these Jews did, but you can be tempted to go back to your traditions, to go back to your way of thinking, to what you're used to, rather than going to the superiority of Christ. Everything here is showcasing. Now get this. Everything is showcasing Christ. This whole section, which is the most difficult section, is saying, look, everything that was great in the Old Testament has now been supplanted by something far greater. And that, far, that greatness is found in Jesus Christ, who is uh, foreshadowed by Melchizedek. So we ask this question, why does this matter? Why does it matter that we study this? Why does it matter that we, we know this? We need to know it because this, the Old Testament system is not our system. It is not that which guides our lives today. It was a system of law. It was a system of legalism. It was a system that, that was good in its place, but could never sanctify the saints. And the reason it could not do that is because nobody could live it. Nobody could live it. And therefore, they were always under condemnation to a point. Even though Christ had did, did save those that came to him, still they never got out from under the, 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 the bondage of the law. Remember when Jesus said to, in, in, in uh, the Gospels, he said, Come to me, all you that are, lab- that are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. He really wasn't talking about being tired. He was talking about the bondage of the law. The law wears us down, folks. It, 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 it pushes us down. We can't get up. And so the law has been replaced by Christ and all that is more superior in Him. Look no further then than to the superiority of our great King and our great Priest, Jesus Christ, who enables us to draw near to God. And I missed this point I wanted to mention. The key point of the book of Hebrews is the Lord has now opened the way that we sinners can draw near to God. And it's only because that he's our priest and our king that that's possible. And now he stands on the other side of the bridge, the bridge he built to God, and he says, come to me, draw near, draw near to me. And I will give you rest. Rest from the toils that you're trying to impress God with. I'll give you my grace and my life. I wanted to close with a little thing here that really is only partially related to what I'm saying. But it fits the big picture. When we're looking at these Old Testament stories and people and things that seem sometimes obscure to us, some Christians just don't want to get into that. They don't want to know about that. I want to encourage you otherwise. Found in the book 
in the, in the Bible, Billy Sunday, the old evangelist from the early part of the 20th century, who in some ways was a little bit bizarre, I'll give you that, but a man who loved the Lord and served him. These words, this little ditty was found in his Bible when he died. Okay, I'm going to go ahead and ask the singing group to come on up while I read this, because I want to end immediately with the song that, that this passage, this little ditty talks about. And I want you to think about here uh, the importance of knowing the things of Christ. 29 years ago, it said, with the Holy Spirit as my guide, I entered into the porticos of Genesis, walked down the corridors of the Old Testament art galleries where pictures of Noah, Abraham, Moses, Joseph, Isaac, Jacob, and Daniel hung on the wall. I passed into the music room of the Psalms where the Spirit sweeps the keyboard of nature until it seems that every reed and pipe and God's great organ responds to the harp of David, the sweet singer of Israel. I entered the chambers of Ecclesiastes, where the voice of the preacher is heard, and into the conservatory of Sharon and the lily of the valley, where the sweet spice is filled and perfumed by life. I entered the business office of Proverbs, and on the observatory of the prophets, where I saw telescopes of various sizes pointing to far-off events, concentrating on the bright and morning star, which was to rise above the moonlit hills of Judea, for our salvation and redemption. I entered the audience room of the King of Kings and catching a vision written by Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. There into the correspondence room with Peter, Paul, James, John, and writing their epistles. I stepped into the throne room of the Revelation where tower the glittering peaks where sets the King of Kings upon his throne of glory. And with the healing of the nations in his hand, I cried out, All hell the power of Jesus' name. Let angels prostrate fall and bring forth the royal diadem and crown him Lord of all. Wow.